Let's open God's word this morning to, first, to uh, the second book of Samuel. Been used to saying First Samuel, but it, we are in Second Samuel, uh, chapter one. Second Samuel, chapter one. As you turn there, we are uh, at the beginning of a new sermon series through the book of Second Samuel. Uh, a few years ago, we worked through First Samuel. Last week, we did an overview of the book of Second Samuel, and today we are jumping in with chapter one. As you uh, open your Bibles and as you turn to God's Word, I want to remind you and encourage you that our aim as a congregation is to look at God's Word in big chunks and work through it uh, section by section. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be in this series for quite a few weeks as this book has 24 chapters. Let's listen to God's Word as it begins with a sad story. A story uh, in which uh, bad news, in which defeat, in which the fall of mighty men uh, are being brought to the foreground. How do we respond uh, when defeat, when loss happens? Well, Second Samuel chapter 1, here's God's word for us this morning. After the death of Saul... When David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on, the Mount, on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered him, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it? 
that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Your mountains of Gilboa, you mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us and for our gathering this morning. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word and our hearing of it. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed this word to us. You have put it as part of your scripture. We pray that you would help me proclaim it clearly, and we ask that you would help us all to hear it and to hear your word through it. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Would you agree with me that this is a rough beginning? It's a tough passage. It's a tough news. Second Samuel begins on this uh, rough patch. And certainly it was rough for the characters in the story. Chapter 1 tells us not of what happened to Saul and Jonathan and the the army of Israel, but how, how the news of what happened to Saul and Jonathan and the armies of Israel, how that news reached David, who was next in line to the throne, and how he responded to this news. Now, why focus... Not so much on the news, but on how the news is communicated and received. Why focus on David and and his response to this news? Well, because he had been anointed as the next king all the way back in the middle of 1 Samuel. 
For years, David has been running from Saul to save his life. He has been waiting to receive the kingdom and the throne that God had promised him. And after years, after years of waiting, the time has come. The one whose place David was supposed to take is finally dead. His regime came to a tragic end. How would David respond to the news that the man on Israel's throne, who was actually seeking his life all this time, was dead? Would he rejoice, finally saying, finally? No, David's response is surprising and instructive. David taught Israel how to esteem even such a king who had persecuted him and acted in threatening ways against David. David teaches us how to see God's grace in God's people, even in those with whom we disagree with. Even in those people, among God's people, who with whom the relationship is, is rough and rocky. David, in this passage, responds in such graceful ways towards Saul. And you can only respond with grace to the people among God's people who even who have hurt you and have caused you so much grief David is, only, is able to respond in this gracious way because he has seen God's grace in God's people despite their failures and shortcomings. And now there's something unique about Saul that will impact why David responds to Saul and to this news in such a gracious way. It's because David knew that God is setting up his kingdom among his people. And Saul had been God's anointed king. This refrain of God's kingdom and of his anointed king is impacting the way David treats Saul even after his death. So as we look at this gracious way that David has, and they, the way David responds to Saul, we see a lesson that David is instructing us through this, Saul, through this uh, part of Scripture. Treat God's people graciously because of His enduring kingdom. Treat God's people graciously because of His enduring kingdom. The structure of this chapter is fairly easy to to see, the first 16 verses uh, have a narrative. They tell a story. And then from verse 17 to the end of the chapter, we see a song that David teaches, that David uh, it laments. And he not only laments it for himself, but he actually teaches Israel this song. So this, these two parts provide the, the two points of the message this morning. The first one is that David 
lamented genuinely for God's anointed. David lamented genuinely for God's anointed. In verses 1 through 16, the narrator is recounting the the, the slow motion of how the news of Saul's death and of Jonathan's death, how that news reaches David. And there's a contrast between the messenger who brought the news and David who received the news. The messenger at first is an unnamed, unidentified messenger. We will learn as he as the story of his of this news is is told, we will learn about his identity. But at first, notice his outward appearance. Uh, he has his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now, to come from war with clothes torn is not unusual. But to come with your torn clothes and with dirt on your head was more than just, I'm coming from battle. It was a sign of mourning. It was a sign of lament. So it's as if this messenger is putting on and is making sure that as he arrives to deliver the news, he is putting on the appearance of lamenting. But this lament was only an outward appearance. And you say, well, how do we know that? Because if we keep reading through the book, we would get to a later chapter in chapter 4. David remembers this incident and speaks of it, summarizes it in two verses. In chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, David speaks and he says, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and though he was, bring, and though he was bringing good news... I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. In other words, this man is putting on the appearance of lamenting, but he's thinking he's bringing good news to David. Here's a pretense lament. If you only knew how David would respond to this news. I wonder if he would have traveled the 80-plus miles from the Mount of Gilboa all the way to Ziklag to bring this news. The messenger who delivered the news not only had an ulterior motive, but later in the story we learn that the identity, his identity was somewhat of, a, of an ironic connection. We learn that he was an Amalekite. You may not think much about that, except that if we remember Saul's story, the Amalekites were the ones under God's judgment. They have gotten the judgment of God has reached a point where God was ready to decree their destruction. And he commissioned Saul to go out and carry God's destruction against the Amalekites. To wipe them off. And Saul refused to obey the word of the Lord. And therefore, 
because of that disobedience on Saul's part, Saul lost the right to hold on to the throne of the kingdom. How ironic that now the man who takes the news of Saul's death and brings that news to David is an Amalekite. How ironic. Now, when David hears the news, he, at this point, he still doesn't know who this guy is, and he's not yet sure uh, if he can trust the messenger. So David asked him, how is it that he knew for sure that Saul and Jonathan were dead? And the man answered that he had been with Saul when Saul died. Now, a number of the details, uh, as, he, as this Amalekite is telling the story, a number of the details match with what we read in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. Yet, there is an important twist, an important distortion of the truth in this Amalekite's mouth. We know that he doesn't say the truth in full because in chapter 31, the narrator told us that Saul willingly fell upon his own sword and died after his servant refused to kill him at his request. The evidence that this man had been with Saul near him when he died is the fact that he had Saul's crown in his hand and his armlet, and he was able to take it from Saul before the Philistines got to Saul and took his body and took it to Philistia and dismembered it and shamed it. Even if this Amalekite was lying and did not actually kill Saul, he was close enough to the scene to see how Saul died and then take the crown from his head, take the armlet before the Philistines got to Saul, and, uh, and this Amalekite would walk. He somehow got the nerve to walk 80 plus miles in the geography between Mount Gilboa and Ziklag to get to David and deliver the news and the crown of Saul to David. How ironic. How ironic that it is an Amalekite who takes and removes Saul's crown from his head. How ironic. I love how one Bible teacher put it beautifully. Saul lost his kingdom because he took plunder from the Amalekites against God's command, if you remember. And in the end, the symbols of his kingship were plundered by an Amalekite. How ironic. When David hears this news, we read in verse 11 and 12 that David and his men tore his clothes. This was a sign of mourning. This is the way you publicly and visibly declared uh, that it's time for widespread mourning. And they mourned, they wept, they fasted till evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. Now, friends, it's not surprising that David and his men mourned for Jonathan and for the people of God. But to mourn for Saul and for his army, 
for his men who had been on the, on, on the pursuit of, of David all this time. These were the men David had run from for all these past years. If this transfer of regime would have been according to human standards and Saul's death should have been celebrated and rejoiced in by the guy who was waiting for his time to come to get to the throne. Or at least the mourning and the weeping would have been directed only to, to Jonathan. But not so much for Saul as well. Well, friends, the change of regime here that, that we see from Saul to David should have been, should have been processed differently. But it wasn't for David. David here mourns, and his grief is genuine. His lament for Saul and for Jonathan are genuine. How do we know that? Well, we will see in just a moment how David responds to the man who brought the news. But here, here we see, before we even see how David treats the man who brought the news, we see how David responds to Saul and his servants, his army. Saul's relationship to, to David was not a happy relationship. It was not, this, this lack of happiness was not caused by David's fault. David had treated Saul with impeccable integrity and love. Yet to the end of Saul's life, David had been a target and a threat. So here's a lesson for us. Even within the people of God, it is possible for some people not to get along, to be rubbing each other the wrong way, and it's, it's possible for some relationships to remain distant even to the grave. Now imagine this messenger's surprise when he, who pretended to be mourning, but in his heart, he's thinking, I'm bringing good news to the next king, and he will award me for bringing the news and bringing him the crown. He's ready to take on the throne. Imagine his surprise when he realizes that the man who is supposed to, who is, who is next in line, does not respond to his expectations. He does not respond in the human ways you and I would be tempted to respond to such a situation. But David, David's lament and mourning was the least of this man's surprises. The rest of David's questions to this man lead David to decide to kill the messenger. Notice the reason. Verse 13, David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. Now, he was not just the man, he was not just the son of an Amalekite. He was the son of a sojourner. For Jewish lingo, that meant he was a resident alien living in Israel as someone who sought asylum, who sought to live among the people of God. Here's a man who is a second generation of Amalekites living in Israel. He should have known about Saul and who he was. He should have known of what God was doing even 
in setting up someone like Saul. So David says, when he hears that he was the son of a sojourn, David follows up with, a, with the last question. David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? If he was the son of a resident alien living in Israel, he should have had the fear of God not to act against God's anointed king. But apparently, this man lacked the fear of God. So David commands that this man should be killed because he said that he had killed Saul. What a poor logic in this Amalekite. His pretense, instead of being a reason to gain a reward and to gain some, some position from the new king, it, his pretense actually was a reason that led to his death. David understands that the seat Saul occupied was a seat of authority that God established over his people. And no one can rebel against God's anointed without severe consequences, not even Amalekites. This explains why David consistently had refused to act against Saul, even when Saul and his flaws against David were so big. Even when Saul's threats towards David were clearly unmistakable, you wonder, David, why would you continue to refuse to act against Saul? His answer here tells us what was going on in David's mind all along in 1 Samuel, why David would treat Saul so graciously. And even in this moment after his, he died, David would not, would not dare to act against Saul and the office he had. Even Saul's servant in chapter 31 feared greatly and lif refused to lift his hand against Saul on the battle. But this Amalekite dared to pretend that he could lift his hand against Saul and be fine. David's punishment of this Amalekite and the reason he gives tells us what was going on in David's mind. David understands that raising your hand against God's anointed king cannot go unpunished. And David shows his righteousness here not only by genuinely lamenting, but by punishing the one who acts against the Lord's anointed. You say, how, do we, how does that affect you and I and me today? A friend, this is not the only time when God warns people, not only his people Israel, but even the nations of the earth about not reacting, not acting against God's anointed king. Psalm 2 that our brother Zach read for us is an example of that place where we read that God calls all the nations of the earth to be careful of how they respond and how they react to God's anointed king. 
The nations, we read in Psalm 2, had a knack for rejecting and rebelling against the Lord and His anointed. And to act against God's anointed king is to act against God Himself. And that will not be let go unpunished. You may not be an Amalekite pretending to kill someone. But if you are not a Christian, consider how your life has rejected Christ and the reign He came to establish. For us today, God's anointed king that we must embrace is King Jesus. Acting against him and rejecting him puts us on the same collision course leading to our own death in the end. Yet we so often are mistakenly thinking that if we reject God's anointed, we actually will reap some benefits in this world like this Amalekite thought he could act against God's anointed king and somehow be better off for that. Saul here is dead. He certainly was not the perfect king in, on God's throne, but nevertheless, he was God's anointed king. And David comes here to show us his heart devotion for the office that Saul had. So this response from David challenges us to consider that each of us, if any of us, continue to be on a collision course with God's anointed king, it will be only to our own destruction. David understood the office Saul was in, and therefore he acted rightly against those who lifted their hands against Saul. David lamented and punished those who acted against God's anointed. This is why David acted so surprisingly gracious towards Saul, not just towards Jonathan. Friends, this means that for you and I, when we think about the people with whom we sometimes may have differences and we experience distance and some level of unhealth. Consider not merely what they have done to you. If that's all you consider, you will have a hard time relating to them in a gracious way. But if they are part of the people of God, if God has redeemed them, if they are part of, of God's kingdom, then consider putting the filter of the kingdom of God between you and that person. And treat that person through the filter of God's kingdom. They're fellow citizens of the kingdom. Treat them graciously. Not because of how they treated you, but because of the kingdom that God has come to establish in their hearts and in your heart. David not only lamented genuinely, we see also that David taught a national song of lament. David taught a national song. This chapter closes in the second part after moving away from the Amalekite and, and learning how David's genuine lament is seen by the way he punished this Amalekite. David's genuine lament is also seen in the fact that he writes a song. And he not only writes a song for himself, but he teaches a song to the whole nation. In other words, he wanted God's people to memorize a song, to know this song. This song will become like, like the, an, a song of national identity 
for the people of God. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 17 and 18. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. The book of Jashar is one of the archives of the people of Israel that was available at the time when the book was written. It's no longer available to us. It was lost. The book of Jashar is not part of inspired scripture. If it had been part of inspired scripture, God would have preserved it. So you don't have to fear and wonder, oh, do we have an incomplete Bible because we don't have the book of Jashar? No, the book of Jashar was an archive for the people of Israel that held a number of important stories and documents that the people of Israel held on to closely. And the fact that this song was included and written in the book of Jashar simply says it made it into the national archives. It made it to be part of the national identity of the people of God. This song is not a song of praise or exaltation. Even though it has language similar to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, this song is not David exalting in God's deliverance from his enemies. And this is what makes this song so different than Hannah's song in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. This is not a song of vindication. This is not David saying, finally, I told you Saul was a crooked guy. No, there's no vindication here. This is a song of lament. What lesson is this song of lament teaching us? Well, the, the lesson is clearly captured in a phrase that is being repeated three times. The phrase is, how the mighty have fallen. You see that in verse 19, in verse 25, in verse 27. In the first stanza, in the first part of this of the song, David focuses on Saul. In the second part, David focuses on Jonathan. And in the final last part, on the weapons. In this song of lament, David takes time to praise Saul. In ways, let me, let me just confess, in ways that I could not have done it if I had been in David's shoes and after all that Saul had done for me or to me. And you wonder, David, how can you? How can you speak of Saul in such positive and in such gracious ways? Now, this song and, and the, this list of positive characteristics is not a balanced biography of Saul's life. This is not the time to give a fair and balanced biography of the king who just died. This is a song that highlights God's grace in Saul's life, even when Saul did not deserve it. This is a song that highlights God's grace in a, in a king who was flawed, in a king who blew it big time. Nevertheless, Saul, David is able to capture facets of the grace of God in this man's kingship. So let's look at it for a moment. David speaks of the two leaders of Israel, Saul and Jonathan, as being Israel's glory. 
What a respectful and gracious way for David's opening line of this song to start with the word, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. What a gracious way to speak of your leaders. This is the opposite of shaming Saul as the Philistines have done. David is actually highlighting and bringing up the graciousness of God even through Saul's leadership. David wishes this news not to be spread to the Philistines. Why would he say that? In verse 20, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Why? Not so much that David didn't want the truth of what was not good about Saul, not because he wanted to hide that from the people of God, but this is a time in which David realizes that the defeat of Saul and Jonathan and the armies of Israel would actually bring more joy and enthusiasm and reasons for the Philistines to boast in their gods over the God of Israel. The point is that the defeat of God's anointed should not, be, should not encourage God's enemies to rejoice to fight against God and his people in an ongoing way. There is a misdirected sense of security and joy that the secular people, in this case the Philistines, might have when they hear the news of the defeat of God's king. It's the same point that Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, when he said to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. That's what the world did when they crucified Jesus. The, 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 the secular people, the, those who were the enemies of God's people, will actually rejoice. And, and here the psalm says, tell it not into Gath. Don't, don't, don't spread the news. Why Gath? Gath was a hometown of Goliath. It was a place where the Philistines had been humiliated. Paul, David says, don't, don't, don't reverse the news because it will only encourage the Philistines to keep persevering in their opposition to God and his people. The Lament Song wishes that nature would stop acting as designated. Look at verse 21. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. It's as if David wished to be under a curse, for nature to stop acting naturally. That's how serious this defeat was. It's a way of showing the people of God how, how big of a deal it was that God's king had been brought down. Even nature itself should act differently when the falling of God's king would happen. Of course, this is not the only time when nature would act differently, when God's anointed king would be defeated and killed. Remember on Easter when Jesus died, it became darkness in the middle of the day. Nature itself would understand the severity, the, the, the bigness of what was going on 
when the, the king that God anointed was killed. David understands the magnitude of that, so he puts that here. Of course, David can't command nature to stop giving the dew, but through this song, he is helping us see the, the, the bigness of what's going on in this, in this story. In the second half of the lament song, David turns his focus exclusively on Jonathan. In the beginning, it's Jonathan and, and, and Saul combined. But notice what, what praise, uh, David praises about Saul and Jonathan together. Their courage in battle is highlighted in verse 22. Their unity both in life and in death for their giftedness as warriors. We see that in verse 23. Then verse 24, David teaches the daughters of Israel to lament for the provisions Saul brought upon the nation. Now here's the grace of God upon Saul's reign. Remember back in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel when Saul said, listen, if you guys want a king, he will take from you. He will take from you. He will take from you. That was a warning. God in his graciousness used Saul's reign to be the means by which God brought prosperity to the people of God. That was God's graciousness. Saul's reign was a time in which actually Saul brought prosperity to the people of God. God warned them about something else, and yet God acted graciously through them, through Saul. And, and David highlights this graciousness of God and then as, as both of Saul and, da- and, 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 Saul and Jonathan are, uh, are described, then the end of this lament song is focusing exclusively on Jonathan. And what is David bringing out about Jonathan? What is David highlighting about Jonathan? He highlights not only the courage and the giftedness and the way Jonathan treated his father with such dignity and unity, But David highlights a relationship Jonathan had with David. And it shows up in two images, the image of family and the image of love. The image of family and the image of love. David, throughout this lament, in the first part of the lament, calls Jonathan Saul's son. But here at the end of this lament song, David calls Jonathan my brother. Jonathan had become family to David. And David highlights that this family connection was not just a distant family relative. You you guys know what that looks like. You know, you have a family member who's just, yeah, he's part of the family, but he's distant. He's a little weird. He's a little quirky. Um, Yes, we see each other from time to time, but um, it's good to keep our distance. We have too many differences. We're very different. You know those kind of people in your family? Do you have them? Some of you are nodding your heads. David calls Jonathan my brother, even though they were not blood-related. But David f- highlights not only the family connection, he highlights da- Jonathan's love for David. 
Look at verse 26, and this, is, this gets to be like the climax of what David emphasizes about Jonathan. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Friends, this verse shows a deep level of friendship that existed between these two men. Jonathan is praised here not merely for his skills and abilities, but, but for his friendship and love to David. Now, let me just ask, do you have such friendships? Let me, let me speak to the men. For some reason, the ladies have an easier time to, to get around to have such friendships. But men, do we have such strong friendships with other brothers in the Lord? Do you desire to have such friendships? Some men simply don't have a desire for friendships outside their family, but not so with David and Jonathan. Do you cultivate such friendships? Would others say such words about you at your funeral? The way David speaks of Jonathan here. They could say it only if you live out today in the way that Jonathan committed to David. Manliness is not to be the macho man who can go through life by himself. Jonathan's friendship to David was not an easy friendship. He developed this close friendship with a man his father was trying to kill. If anyone had obstacles to overcome to cultivating this friendship, it was Jonathan. And yet, for Jonathan, he latched his heart towards David. Who can you reach out to to be such a friend and show love to? And I'm speaking specifically towards the men because, let me just say, I think the men, especially in this congregation, just have a harder time developing such meaningful and deeper friendships. Uh, I want to pray that the Lord would increase the friendships of our brothers in this congregation. And ladies, please pray for that. We need all the prayers uh, that we can get for this purpose. Now, sadly, this verse has been used by the LGBTQ community uh, to be reinterpreted as evidence that David and Jonathan had homosexual tendencies or homosexual relationships. Nothing could be further from reality, since both of these men had their own wives and descendants. But the phrase, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women, how should we interpret this phrase? Well, first, it was a love that led Jonathan to enter into a covenant with David. Their friendship and love for one another was a committed love. It was a love that led the one to enter into a covenant with the other. This is not just a sort of a, just a superficial kind of friendship when it's convenient. No, it was a committed love kind of love. Friend, do you have friendships sealed by a covenant? Say, I don't. Well, actually, if you're a member of this church, you do. Because if you have members in this church, there is a covenant between us. 
The membership covenant is a covenant we have that should protect and cultivate our friendships with one another. We're actually not that far off from what Jonathan and David uh, experienced here. Second, it was a love that led Jonathan, and this is the beautiful part and the climax. It was a love that led Jonathan to renounce his right to the throne and to submit to David as his king. Jonathan was the first of Saul's household to acknowledge David's future reign. And he immediately and joyfully submitted to David. That's why Jonathan made a covenant with David back in 1 Samuel. As one Bible teacher put it beautifully, this is Matthew Henry, he said, Surely never was the like for a man to love one who he knew was to take the crown over his head and to be so faithful to, to him. This far surpasses the highest degree of conjugal affection and constancy. What made Jonathan's love for David so unique is that Jonathan was the rightful heir or the expected heir to the throne. And Jonathan rightly gave up that right and submitted himself to the one who actually deserved the reign because God put him in charge of that. That's why Jonathan's friendship and love to David is surpassing the, 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 the love that happens between men and women. It's because it's a love of self-surrender to the one who would be king over me. Well, friends, I wonder if this love is a love that you have come to experience. A love in which you are willingly giving up the right to rule your life. The right to the throne of your life, of your expected kingdom, and actually join and commit to and love and become so devoted to the one who is rightfully God's anointed king. It is only when we actually experience that kind of love to the one who is God's anointed king that we're able to love one another in gracious ways. This is why the song of lament praises Jonathan's love to be so wonderful, so extraordinary. This is where Jonathan also exceeds Saul's greatness. Jonathan is praised not only for his courage and giftedness and blessing that he brought to Israel, but he is upheld as the one who early on had understood how to relate to God's anointed promised king. That did not cause Jonathan to disrespect his father. And this is an amazing tension here. Jonathan knew that David was the next king. And yet Jonathan helped and was next to his father, even to the day of his death. There's a way in which we must learn, while we, are, we have our devotion to King Jesus, also to love our family members who hate Jesus. There's, a, there's something sweet here in Jonathan, the way he's able to treat graciously David and his father when these two were in conflict with one another. 
Oh, friends, through the Song of Lament, David not only showed how he himself regarded Saul and Jonathan, but he also wanted to teach God's people how to regard Saul and Jonathan in their failures and in their strengths, in their good times and in their bad times. They were men that God had raised up and equipped to carry out God's protection and purposes. Yes, Saul had severe shortcomings. And I confess to you, I need to learn from David in the way he spoke so graciously about people who have hurt him so hard. But when the kingdom of God is a common denominator between you and others, let the kingdom of God affect the way you treat others with grace. Treat God's people graciously because of his enduring kingdom. Let me ask you, who are the people you need to start treating graciously today or this week? Don't wait for them to die before you can speak to them graciously. If you cannot treat them graciously now, you will not be able to treat them graciously after they die. Ask God for help. King Jesus is on the throne. He came to bring us a peace and the grace we need so that we can show it to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us a passage that is hard to process, and yet we see the way you have worked in David's own heart to protect him from bitterness, to protect him from seeking revenge and vindication on his own. Thank you for the grace you have given him to treat those who have hurt him, to treat them in a gracious way. Thank you that in this David has shown us what it means for us to look to you and to your kingdom. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the one who came to heal us and to bring completeness to the brokenness that we experience in our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.